0: Thank you, Anne. Um, Good morning, everyone. I'm Belinda. I'm the Associate Minister here at Darling Street Anglican Church. And welcome and well done being here on this cold morning. Um, That's an achievement, isn't it? Isn't that an achievement, getting up out of your warm beds and coming here? And have you already said this, (laughs) Annie? (laughs) Sorry, I've just come up from St. Mary's, um, one of our other congregations. So I missed the first little bit. Sorry if I'm repeating myself, ourselves. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you for your people gathered here this morning. Father, you know that we each come with different things on our hearts, with different burdens and worries and joys. And, Father, we want to hear from you. So would you please speak to each of us into our situations? Lord, may we hear your truth, and may all that is not truth um, just be forgotten. Anything that is not of you, may that not be remembered. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over this term here at Darling Street Anglican Church, we've been looking at the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And um, if you've been in church this term, then you'll know that Ecclesiastes was written by someone known as Kohelet. Kohalet, meaning teacher. And Kohalet writes the book from the position of someone very rich, very powerful, and who has enjoyed every pleasure it is possible to enjoy um, back in the third century BC, at least. He's someone who's had it all. Um, and this position actually gives him credibility to explore and make observations and draw conclusions about life, about the meaning of life. Some people think that this um, person, Colette, was King Solomon, the um, Bible's King Solomon, but actually most theologians conclude that. It was not King Solomon, but actually someone um, who lived much later in the 3rd century BC. And um, he makes his observations from the perspective of someone like Solomon, someone who is very rich and very wise and very powerful, and in fact more wise, rich and powerful than anyone before him. So a sort of super Solomon. And in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet repeatedly comes to the same conclusion. He keeps on saying this refrain of hevel, everything is hevel. And that's a Hebrew word for, uh, well, it is sometimes translated as meaningless. Our NIV translation um, says meaningless, but actually it's better translated as enigmatic, enigmatic. Everything is enigmatic, a mystery, elusive, um, like grasping onto a vapor or smoke. Trying to figure out the meaning of life on this earth is enigmatic. And here in chapter five, um, that Anne's just read to us, verses eight to 20, Kohelet starts with a statement about justice and injustice, which is one of his big themes in the book. Um, We don't often read from the King James version of the Bible, Um, it's very, it's old fashioned, it's not very helpful language generally, but I wanna read you the the verse eight in the King James. It says, if thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. So, what does that mean? If you see corruption in governments and authorities, marvel not. Don't be surprised that power corrupts at every level of um, governance and it results in oppression of the poor. And we know that, don't we? Um, Recently I've been learning more about IJM, International Justice Mission, and they rescue vulnerable people who have been trapped into slavery. Um, but part of their strategy is not just to rescue people out of slavery, but also to find and stop the injustice, in uh, the, the corruption, sorry, within the justice system that actually makes that all possible in the first place, that makes that exploitation of the vulnerable possible. Um, so marvel not when you see that doesn't mean don't do anything about it, but it shouldn't come as a surprise. Now, although Kohelet starts by talking about injustice in this passage, what he mostly addresses is wealth, and he gives us good news about wealth and bad news about wealth. So do you want the good news or the bad news? Yeah, bad news, it always goes first, doesn't it? Bad news. Okay, here's the bad news about wealth that Kohalet observes. He says, if you love wealth, verse 10, if you've got Bibles there, then here are six features of what life will look like for you if you love wealth. Number one, you'll never be satisfied. You can never have enough. Um, Have you seen the movie All the Money in the World? I saw it this week. It's about... um, It tells a story uh, based on a true life story of John Paul Getty who was, um, at some time last century, the richest man in the world. And his grandson was kidnapped and held ransom for $17 million. Now, no spoilers, um, but Getty, at least as he's portrayed in the movie, is a perfect example of someone who was tremendously wealthy and still wanted more. Um, So, for example, and apparently this is true, not just in the movie, but he installed a payphone in his house in one of his mansions for his guests to use, so he didn't have to pay for their phone calls. Um, (laughs) There's a scene in the movie where he is asked, what would it take for you to feel secure? And he says, more. Number two. Carlette says, the more you have, the more hanger honorers you'll have. He doesn't say that. He says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. But what that means is the more you have, the more people will want what you have. Um, Oprah Winfrey, celebrity in America, um, fabulously wealthy. I've heard is also potentially the, the next president of the US. Um, <laughs> Wouldn't surprise anyone, would it? Um, She understands this. Here's what she says about being rich. She says, everyone wants to ride with you in the limo, but what you want is someone who'll take the bus with you when the limo breaks down. When you have more, more people will be attracted to you because they want what you've got. Number three, you'll worry. You'll be robbed of rest. Rest. Verse 12 says, as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. You'll lie awake, perhaps worrying about the share price. On the other hand, kohelet tells us the laborer, that is the one who works hard, who doesn't have much, sleeps well because they've got enough to get by on, not enough to worry about. Maybe only just enough to get by on, but enough to meet their needs. Point four, in verse 13, Kohelet observes that sometimes people hoard their wealth. This is no good to them. It reminds me of the proverbial um, woman who lives virtually destitute and lives on cat food and won't turn the lights on to save money on the electricity bill and then dies and surprises everyone by leaving millions to the cat shelter. You know, we've all heard about that sort of story, haven't we? Or, number five, you might lose it all, meaning other generations will miss out as well as you. So loving wealth is risky. And then finally, point six, Colette says, just to top it all off, you can't take it with you. We're all gonna die and no, no amount of wealth will stop that. So he asks, where's the gain? Where's the gain in loving wealth? It's frustrating, it provokes anger, it's like living in darkness. And what he has seen shows that there's no gain in this way of living. He says it's a grievous evil. It's very extreme language, isn't it? We don't talk like that generally. A grievous evil. But isn't it true? Isn't it terribly, wickedly sad when people are deluded into thinking that wealth can deliver meaning, purpose, and hope. Grievous evil. So that's the bad news. It's a whole lot of reasons why loving wealth is not a good idea, drawn from the experiences and observations of someone who has tasted what it is like to be fabulously wealthy. It's a way of life that does not work. Now, I want to ask, do you think that's true? Is this true today in the 21st century? Um, Because this part of the Bible was written about 24 centuries ago, it's a long time ago. Um, The context has changed, but has anything else changed? Have you observed what Kahelet has observed? I read um, this week, and what would we do without the internet, by the way? What did preachers ever do before they had Google? Um, I read a fascinating article this week on a website called Business Insider Australia. And the title of the article is called, I made 15 million US dollars before I was 30 and being rich wasn't as awesome as you'd think. Um, The writer's premise of his article isn't about loving wealth or loving money. He just lists reasons for why being super rich wasn't as awesome as you'd think. Um, But just listen to what they are. He says this, quote, you are not allowed to complain about anything ever. Since most people imagine being rich as Nirvana, you are no longer allowed to have any human needs or frustrations. Number two, he says, Most people now want something out of you, and it can be harder to figure out whether someone is being nice to you because they like you or they're being nice to you because of your money. If you aren't married yet, good luck. You will be filled with self-doubt. Number three, he says it gets weird with your family and friends. They want things from you. They ask for loans. It makes you feel isolated. Number four, he says, you sometimes lay awake at night wondering if you made the right investment decisions, whether it might all go away. Sometimes you're worried that you might lose your mind and spend it all. Number five, he says, all of the things you picture buying, they are only worthwhile to you because you cannot afford them. Yes, the first time you drive the new Audi or eat in a fancy restaurant, you really enjoy it. But then you get used to it. And then you are looking towards the next thing, the next level up. Everything below that level doesn't get you quite as excited anymore. That article was written in 2014, and yet it just echoes the words of Koholet, doesn't it? It's like a modern-day Koholet. It's someone who has experienced what it feels like to have it all. And he's drawn conclusions about what it all means. Um, So can I ask, does it surprise you? Because my hunch is that this is no surprise to us. I think we know this stuff. I think that there's enough evidence um, that we can see, we can observe it, maybe not firsthand but by looking at the lives of those who set out to be very wealthy. We know that money can't buy happiness, don't we? Don't we know that? I've heard Ecclesiastes um, described as a depressing book, um, but I don't agree with that. I think it's a very realistic book. I think it presents a realistic look at life, at what life's like under the sun, and this observation of What happens when you love wealth is a really good example of that realism, the realism of Ecclesiastes. So what's the solution? Don't love wealth. Easy. Um, There is good news though. Here's the good news. It doesn't mean rejecting wealth altogether. In verses 18 to 20, Kohelet observes something different about wealth. Here, he seems to change his tune entirely. He says, it's good to have wealth and possessions and to enjoy them and to be happy in, work, to, in your work and to accept your lot in life. So he's presenting these two different pictures of what it looks like to be wealthy. Um, and what's the difference? How can he paint a picture of wealth as bad on one hand and good on the next, in the next breath. And I think the difference is this, that it's, it's about what comes first in each scenario. So the bad news description is about what happens when a person loves wealth, well, when wealth is king, when wealth is God. The good news description is a picture of what happens when a person loves God. God is king, God is God. Um, Did you notice that in verses 18 to 20, just in those three verses, God is mentioned four times, but not at all in the previous verses. Um, In verses 18 to 20, Kohelet presents a positive picture of wealth and possessions. Three of those four times, God is mentioned in relation to his gifts, the gift of life, life given by God, wealth and possessions given by God. Um, the ability to enjoy life, work, wealth, and possessions given by God. So there's this picture of abundance, but instead of love for wealth, there is an acknowledgement of God's place in all of this. He is the provider. He is the giver of the wealth. And the giver is always more important than the gift, isn't it? So this is a key theme of the book of Ecclesiastes and in fact, uh, more generally, in the genre of biblical wisdom literature of which Ecclesiastes is a part. And in wisdom literature, this is known as fear of the Lord, which really just means not being afraid and cowering, but actually acknowledging God's place as first and foremost over everything. He's a good God who gives good gifts True, he's a God who we don't understand entirely because he's God. He's not one of us. He's not human. And so fear of the Lord means acknowledging that. Acknowledging God as the giver, as the ultimate, means everything else falls into place. Wealth and work and possessions all assume their place as useful and necessary and enjoyable, but a gift, a tool and never actually meant to be an ultimate goal loving wealth will only disappoint and that in the words of kohelet is a grievous evil and of course centuries later jesus said much the same he said you can't serve god and money so um Far from rejecting wealth as worldly, which I think Christians sometimes mistakenly do, the the whole stretch of the biblical narrative actually endorses wealth as a gift from God and um, valuable in its place. And we see that here in Ecclesiastes. God is celebrated in the Bible as a God of abundance. And that's what wealth is, isn't it? It's abundance. In the old testament god 's blessing is associated with abundance in all realms in um, possessions and relationships and health that 's wealth. So I want to have a quick look at um, just a very quick biblical overview. Um, in the first two chapters of Genesis, we are presented with this picture of Eden and um, Eden is a perfect place of abundance. It's a place where everything is good and people live in harmony with each other and with God, and um, they enjoy this abundance that God has provided. Then if you skip all the way to the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, what do we see again but a description of a new heavens and a new earth, it's true, but again, this is a place of perfection and abundance. It's better than Eden. Um, It's a place where people live together in harmony with God and with one another, and we're not only that, but they actually rule with God. They rule the world with with him, and this is a place where there's no pain, there's no grief, and it's a place of unimaginable wealth. So we have Eden, and we have the new heavens and the earth, and in between, we have this corrupted age. It's sort of like Eden corrupted, isn't it? There's good, yes, there's good, but there's also injustice, and there's oppression, and there's war, and there's famine, and grief, and poverty, and broken hearts, and so on. And this corruption is a result of sin. And sin, it's, it's sort of become a Christian jargon word, hasn't it? But really, what does it mean? It just, sin just means choosing the wrong thing to be God, which is the opposite of fear of the Lord, letting God be God. Um, in this age, we can also look back and see that Jesus has come that God has come and that in his life, death and resurrection there is hope, there is promise of this new heavens and new earth and of new resurrected bodies and perfection to come for those who love God. So loving wealth instead of loving God is part of this corrupted order of things, isn't it? Choosing wealth to be my highest order priority, to be my God, it's not gonna work. It was never going to work. Choosing my own power, my own security, my own pleasure, my own comfort to be my highest order priority, to be my God, that will not work. It won't work for me, it won't work for anybody else. As every mother on this earth ever said, it will end in tears. Um, in the movie I referred to earlier, all the money in the world, there's this character, Fletcher Chase, and he's responsible for security, for, Getty, for his personal security. And there's a point in this movie where Fletcher Chase talks about the wealthy people he's worked for before, and he says this, he says, the one thing I've learned is that money is never just money. It always stands for something. And isn't that wealth a Isn't that what it promises? It promises something. It promises security. It promises power. It promises pleasure and comfort. And who doesn't want those? And they're not bad in their place. And it's true, actually, that wealth can provide those things to some extent. But wealth promises more than it can deliver. So if loving wealth is a challenge for you, then ask yourself, what am I looking for? What am I actually after? What does wealth stand for to me? And let's not deceive ourselves that if we're not wealthy, we couldn't love wealth. Because you can love wealth without ever having it, can't you? You may only ever chase after it, but still it can be God in your heart. Because loving wealth is making it into an ultimate thing, an ultimate thing that can't deliver what only God can give. So what do we do with all of this? I have two thoughts. The first is, if you love wealth, if you think, yes, that's me, then stop. Easier said than done, I know. Um, But it's not impossible, is it? Ask God to help you. Give it up, give it away. Maybe literally, maybe in your heart. You can do that. Um, Or if you love wealth and you realize this is not helpful or healthy, then what about this? Love God more. You won't miss out. You won't lose. God is the giver of all good things. He didn't spare his son Jesus for those he loved. Psalm 103 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There's the fear of the Lord again, not being afraid, but acknowledging God's rightful place as God, loving him most. He's a kind, generous father who loves to provide. So you'll be okay. You'll be more than okay. My second thought is for those of us who don't love wealth, who do love God, but who perhaps like me, um, cling a little too tightly to that gift of God's. We in this culture are very individualistic, aren't we? And even as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking of wealth as an individual thing. Um, Wealth belongs to an individual. But the gift of wealth has a corporate nature too. And um, I don't mean like the big banks (laughs) in that business sense, but I mean in a global sense, there is enough wealth for everyone. And can't our wealth go so far in other places? I was in Thailand recently and I took 400 Australian dollars and I changed it into Thai Baht And I got this great wad of money. Um, And I was with some friends who didn't, they don't have anything. And we ate out a lot. And I just kept paying. I kept saying, let me pay, let me pay. That was lovely to be able to do that. And um, I kept buying them things. And after a while, I thought, I'm going to, every time I open my wallet, I'd think, oh, it'll be run out now but it never ran out. It was like this magic bottomless purse. And I actually still had a significant amount of change when I got home. So how far that money went in a poorer country. And so when I think, when I reflect on this whole subject, when I think the people without wealth in this world are most often the people who are disempowered the people who live without the most basic of needs like clean water, um, who live without the security of knowing that the police will protect them, a big problem in the developing world, who live without comfort, who don't have the luxury of choosing a job because it's what they're good at or it's what they enjoy or what they're passionate about, who perhaps don't have wealth because they're a minority group, as so many Christians are in this world. When I think of all that, I think maybe I could just relinquish my tight grip on this gift that I enjoy, just a little, and share it around. Wealth can be good, it's a gift of God, but God is better, he's the giver, he's better, he's incomparably, always, eternally better. He's sufficient to deliver the hope and the purpose and the meaning that we crave and that nothing and no one else can provide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you are generous and kind, that you love to bless. And so we pray, Father. that as you have blessed us, we would bless others, that we would share all the gifts that you've given us. And we pray for those of us who do struggle with um, holding on too hard to things that cannot satisfy. You would help us by the power of your spirit to put you first, to love you more, to know you more, and to do that with joy, and to enjoy you and your gifts as a result. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.